What have you guys learned from this project? I mean, like you said, you invested eight years of your life into this. I mean, here we go. Now now the, the, the wilderness belongs to us because you've really you re- relinquished the book. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think what we've learned is uh, <laughs> is that yeah, eight, eight years is a very long time. I think for, you know during that period, you know, you, you start off with the skeleton of of the book, and then you start fleshing it out. And the more we fleshed it out, the more we the more the you know the man we began began to understand, and you know how his uh, creative engine works and what makes him tick. When you sink your head deep enough into the you know, 1972, that wasn't it, 1972 press, you know, you you find both sides of the story and they're right there in front of you, um, you know, and, and, and spending um, as much time as I did in the British Library, you know, I went through every single one of the five music papers for the entire period of the book and way beyond that, you know, into the uh, the British press, the American press, the regional press um, for wherever they were touring at the time. You know, our, our press clippings archive for this book is so vast. Um, that's why you get all these little nuggets of information, you know, because it was what was reported at the time and what they were saying, you know, as immediate reactions to things. Um, and, and in some cases, you know, like Paul talking about the one-to-one concerts he might have discussed, probably, you know, maybe just after the European tour. I think probably he was asked about that, um, you know, and he, and, he, and he gave a very honest answer at the time about why he didn't go. Um, it would have been interesting to see wings fly from uh, Europe, you know, straight over to the States to, to play at the one-to-one concert, which is what would have happened. So I'd say, yeah, over over that kind of eight-year period, um, you know, we, we really began to understand more of, um, you know, of, of what makes him tick creatively. Fab. I'm Ed Chan. I'm John Stone. I'm guessing with us, author of the McCartney Legacy and a man that I've known virtually, I guess, for what, 25 years? Alan Cozen. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? And hi, John. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Congratulations on a very good book. Thank you. Uh, I, you know, I feel like I know a lot about Paul McCartney and I. I just kept turning pages going, I didn't know that. Um, <laughs> and that's, that was quite a fun read. 
That's what happened to us when we were writing it. You know, we kept finding new things. We didn't. We we weren't particularly looking for you know myths to bust or anything like that. We we just wanted to, you know, do a chronology of the guy's work and life, and things kept coming up that we didn't know. So uh, so it was fun to do. So the original plan was to do kind of an expanded version of what uh, Luca has done. Is that correct? Um, something like that. Um, we thought of it more in terms of, I'm not sure we saw Luca's book at the time. I don't think it was out at the time we started. Um, and so what we wanted to do was a McCartney version of Mark Lewison's Beatles recording sessions. That was, that was what we originally had in mind. And nobody has really covered the recording side, I mean, now other than yourself and Luca. And Luca's is still somewhat different because he's very much on the outside and, and you seem to have achieved a bit more access than he did. Well, we haven't achieved official access. We probably have been more successful in turning things up. And there's a lot of stuff out there that collectors have. If you can get your hands on that, and also there are a lot of university libraries and places that perhaps we lucked out and looked at and Luca didn't. I'm not sure what his research method was, so I can't really say, but we never got official access, which um, would be great if now that the first volume's out, if Paul were to read it and say, you know, these guys actually take me seriously and are treating my stuff with the respect it deserves. Maybe I'll help them this time for volume two, well, but we don't, we're not really counting on that. Yeah, I didn't really know what your access was. And so clearly there are contracts and uh, session notes and touring facts. So I never thought, well, they don't really have access. It seemed like you did. I mean, we, you refer to things like the tape that turned up in Paul's drawer, which had X number of songs on it, and, and here's what he was working on. Those are, dare I say it, not available on the bootleg market, on the Dutch import market. Right, the Dutch import market. They're not yet. And we didn't have access to those either, but we found someone who's heard them. And so we had, first of all, the annotations that came with it, we got a copy of. Eddie Klein had gone through the whole thing when it was found, and he wrote descriptions next to each title. So that was really handy. Plus, we knew someone who'd heard the tape and was able to describe it to us in pretty good detail. But that is one that we didn't get our hands on. I wish I did. So obviously, that was before Eddie Klein passed. What was that, just about a year, year and a half ago? Something like that, yeah. I mean, it, I think there is one thing. There's one demo that he did put out um, that was on that tape, but we don't know if it's the same demo as was on that tape or another one, but that's the demo for 4th of July, uh, which at that point was called Why Am I Crying? Paul didn't play it to me. I mean, I didn't meet Paul, um, obviously. Yeah, I think he, I think he sang it um, while they were there, you know. Right, and they right. they brought the cassette back and said, well, here, here's your song. And then the <laughs> next thing, we booked time in Lansdowne Studios in Holland Park and, and recorded
he he put that demo on um i think it might have been on the venus and mars deluxe edition it was in one of the deluxe editions you have to wonder what his library record keeping is like you know because he, he yeah. archives so much material you know to be able to kind of go you know there's that song from 72 i want to look at again yeah you know it's funny because on one hand, it seems kind of chaotic if you look at the information in the deluxe editions, which is not always correct, and you wonder, how can this not be correct? <laughs> but yet, he began archiving, um, I would say, by the time of wildlife, um, and he then had gone back and archived everything before that, including all the things he did at Root Studios. Uh, there is paperwork showing, you know, what's on each tape. That, that's where we got, you know, some of the lists that we gave. And so it is, it, he did start archiving way back, but then you run into things like this spring-summer 1970 demo tape that you just mentioned, and that was lost. It had never been archived until the 2000s, 2010s. I think it might have been found like 2013 or 14. I can't remember when. That brings up a question. You know, the Beatles had always been a band to put everything or almost everything out. It seems that even as early as McCartney, he decided, no, I'm going to put this away. I'm going to archive this. It's a very fundamentally different way of looking at his music for himself. Yeah, and it's different than all the others, too, ex with the possible exception of George. You know, you get the impression that George had a bunch of songs lying around that maybe one day Livia and Danny will put out. But John did his albums, and there might have been an outtake or two, but once the sessions were done, that was the album. Ringo, same thing. But Paul would go in to make an album, and it wouldn't be until he had probably two or three records worth of stuff that he would sit down and say, okay, so what should be on the album? What should be singles or B-sides of singles? What should I save for some other project? And especially, you know, the Ram sessions. The Ram sessions went on from like October to April, and he just kept recording and recording and recording. I mean, he had those 30-some-odd songs from that demo to start with. He wrote a couple more on the boat on the way over to New York. He wrote some while he was in New York and just kept recording these things. And so that's why a significant portion of Red Rose Speedway sort of had its origin in the Ram sessions. And even later, you know, I mean, he would be putting out things for decades, really, that came from those sessions. Before then, he had been predominantly using cassettes at home and would just kind of record songs, little bits and pieces. Well, cassettes or the Studer four track that he got from EMI, and so far as we can figure, never gave back to them. It was originally a loan. Um, he might have bought it from them at some point, but that Studer four track that he recorded the McCartney album on is most likely the same Studer four track that he kept up in Rude Studio and recorded the Band on the Run demos on. Ah. So that stuck around. He would transfer them to cassettes. 
to bring with him. If, for instance, if he was going to Lagos, um, he made a bunch of cassettes and mix downs of the four track mixes and brought those with him. And those cassettes are the things that were stolen. The four tracks were still safely at home in either London or Scotland, most likely Scotland. Right. Well, that's one of the biggest pieces of myth busting you get out of this book. Lagos wasn't nearly what Paul likes to tell it as. So uh, all my tapes, all my recordings went, and these were all the songs I'd written. So I had to try and remember them all, you know, go, oh, how'd that go, band on the run? And I'm sure the joke is that I'm sure the fellows who took it wouldn't know what it was, you know. They probably chucked it away. Right, and I recently ran into an interview with Denny Lane as well, talking about, yeah, well, you know, they took the cassettes and we had to remember and, you know, but we knew them because we had rehearsed. And But yeah, the sessions were over by the time those cassettes were taken. They may not have been over on purpose at that point. I mean, he might have continued for a little while, but the next day after the mugging, he went to the studio and collapsed, got taken to the hospital and was told by the doctor that he had to sort of rest for a couple of days. And so while resting for a couple of days, he decided, okay, I've had enough of this. We're going home. And he did the arrangements to go home. It's conceivable that if he hadn't been mugged, which probably contributed to the collapse, but not necessarily. So if he hadn't been mugged and he hadn't collapsed, he might have continued because there were still some songs left to do. You know, he hadn't done Jet. There were a number of things that he ended up doing in London when he got back. Uh, so, you know, it's, it's possible he could have stayed. But in the event, the mugging was after it was on the evening of the last session, which is the one he did at Ginger Baker's place. So, are you telling me that Paul went with a good story instead of the truth? <laughs> I'd say that was one of the things we found, but I think we knew that before we went. <laughs> yeah, I think what we get out of this is the fact that Paul knows the difference and he doesn't care. In most cases, you know, if, if you think about his life as also part of a, a public performance. Because after all, you know, you're out there as a musician, you play your concerts, that's your performance, but you either don't get to go home and turn off the light and be yourself, or you have to, you know, come up with some sort of a public persona, which he's done brilliantly. And when he's telling these stories as part of his public persona, um, there are things that he can reasonably assume nobody will really know the truth of. One of the big ones in the book is the story of Live and Let Die and George Martin's tale of being asked, you know, well, a oh, great demo, who are we going to get to do it? <laughs> right. So I read the Ian Fleming book and wrote it the next day, I think, you know, quite quickly. Then got to George Martin, recorded it all up, did the final version. George did a what we thought was a nice mix on it, which is the final mix. Then he took it out to the Caribbean where they were filming some stuff, or New Orleans, I think. I'm not sure, but somewhere out there. Foreign parts. And uh, one of the producers heard it and said, so, well, it's a great demo, George. <laughs> when are you going to do the real one? So it's a pretty good demo. And that was, you know, I can tell you the source of that. The contract for that was, of all places, in the University of Wisconsin. 
they have an archive of film stuff, including stuff related to James Bond films and Live and Let Die. And the contract for that was in that collection. Wow. So we ran into that. Now, and, you know, Paul and even George Martin, although George Martin, I think in his case, I think he just didn't know that, for instance, there was going to be a second version of Live and Let Die in the film and that they needed someone else to do the second version. Who ended up doing that, by the way? Uh, Brenda Arno. I think on the label, she's listed as BJ Arno. And that record was produced by George Martin as well. Oh, you used to say, never let But if this ever-changing world in which we live in makes you give it a cry, say live and let die. The second version, according to the memo of understanding, was supposed to be by the fifth dimension, but that fell apart. And when it was going to be the fifth dimension, Paul had agreed to produce that recording. So Paul knew all about what the details were because he'd agreed to produce the second recording. Um, and he knew you know, perfectly well that he was contracted to do the song that was going to play under the opening titles. Uh, I don't think he had any doubt about that, but he heard George Martin's story and, and he must have thought, you know, that's kind of a cool story because it, it, it really kind of is. Although that was, you know, 20 years later. You know, that was well into the 90s. Do you think there's a chance that Paul just actually doesn't remember some of these things? I don't need to remember. I don't need to know what the truth is. I'll just tell the story because it's a good story. There's possibly some of that, you know, because there are things that he says that are not what happened. And his version is not, it's not so much better that you think he made it up. It, it's much more likely that he actually forgot. For instance, Jet. At the time he wrote it, he talked about how one of his dogs had a litter and the runt of the litter they called Jet and they gave all the puppies in the litter away, but he kind of liked this one. He was, you know, feisty, even though he was the runt of the litter. He went on and on about it. Uh, this next one's called Jet. It was originally written after a puppy whose name was Jet. And then the idea just went berserk. And here it is. And so, okay, Jet took its name from a puppy. You can't say it's about a puppy. It's about all kinds of things. But the name was from a puppy. But today he says the name was from a Shetland pony. I was in a songwriting mood, and I was up in Scotland. I just thought, okay, I've just got to go somewhere and try and write a song. And we happened to have a little pony it was called Jet on the farm. I was on a farm in Scotland. And uh, I actually took my guitar and hiked up this great big hill. I just kind of found myself a place which is in the middle of nature and um, just sat there and just started making up a song, you know. It's not one of those songs that I, even when I sing it now, I don't kind of know what, where all the words came from. I know where Jet came from and I, I like the name. The words are, I can't probably, 
about me and my father-in-law, you know, early days of getting married, and when your father-in-law is kind of a nuisance, and you kind of, hey, so he's probably the major in it, but, uh, you know, it's only a song, so you kind of work, you work your things out. That one was written halfway up a mountain in Scotland. And in the lyrics, he says that, and has a picture of the pony, and they did have a pony that they also called Jed, but that was later. You know, in fact, the picture of the pony that he, he shows is from 1975. So Jet was from 73. Right. Is that the photo in uh, If These Walls Could Sing? Mary's Doc? I think it is the same photo, yeah. I think he also has that in, in lyrics. I, I wish I could remember the source. But, um, you know, there's a story about Paul... And I believe Neil Aspinall discussing something that had occurred during the making of Sergeant Pepper. And they both recalled the same story, but Paul remembered it being at his house and Neil remembered it being at the photo studio. Hmm. And so, you know, you can get honest, not remembering really how things went down. Oh, sure. Absolutely. But, you know, there were also times when he was deliberately, you know, let's say prevaricating. <laughs> For instance, uh, during the Ram sessions, at, at this point, the Ram sessions were in LA. They started in New York and he had to go to London to talk to his lawyer about the lawsuit with ATV doubting that Linda could have contributed to another day. Uh, so he had to talk to his lawyer about that. And around the time he got there, there were the usual rumors of the other Beatles were going to go out on tour, maybe with Klaus Foreman, because they couldn't find Paul. And he lands in London, and there's press at the airport. And they say, well, so are you going to meet with the others? And he says, no, I'm, I'm just here for a couple of days, and I don't imagine I'm going to see the others. So they didn't ask, you know, specifically is this about this rumor of touring and are you here to join? They thought they'd ask, they'd be cagey, you know, ask first if he was going to see the others. And then he says, uh, and then, you know, from here I'm going on to Paris to do some recording. Well, yeah, he wasn't going to Paris. <laughs> there was never any plan of how him going to Paris. We're not going there. We just put it around, we're going there. We're not going there. We just put it round, we're going there. Just so everybody would think we were going there. I'd like to go there. You wouldn't like it. Where are we going then? Never you mind. He was going back to L.A. And the funny thing about it is that, you know, you, you, you listen to the things Paul says and he'll say, uh, you know, well, I'll, I'll open a book. And if I see something wrong in it, I immediately close it and that's it for that book. Well, you know, a lot of information out there is information that he has said in press conferences or interviews that may be wrong. And he may open a book and see some information that he put out there that's wrong, <laughs> close the book and not want to read. <laughs> so I think the way I described it was it's a little cat and mouse game he played with the press where he would tell them a fib and then he would criticize them for getting it wrong. We believe that we can't be wrong. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah. So yeah, it's, it's it, you know, it's like you say, some things are just he's forgotten or it's an honest mistake or whatever. And some things are mm, more deliberately, let's say, fabricated, you know, and it's not like these stories he tells that aren't true or the end of the world in any way or going to cause anyone any harm. Maybe it entertains him. You know, you also might get really sort of bored being that famous and ask the same questions all the time and, and all that. Right. And that was probably the one thing I got out of Bob Spitz's book about the Beatles, which is he really conveyed a sense of how bored they got while on tour. <laughs> yeah. It makes sense. I think they live the life that Wilfred Bramble described in Hard Day's <laughs> Night when he said, I've been in a plane in a room, in a train in a room, in a room in a room, in a, you know, a car in a room, in a room in a room. Right. You know, that's sort of, that was their life. So you bring up the ATV story. Your version of that is the most logical, and I think this is really the first time we've heard most of that. Before we go too far into it, I love your telling of oh linda needs to start writing songs and the first song she comes up with is a variant on the diana chords right that's probably not unusual you know if you're writing in a pop style i mean you know paul and his pals wrote somewhat more complicated pop songs than many people did but you could get an awful lot of pop music out of just a basic one, four, five chord progression. You know, millions of people have and still do. Billy Gibbons. So three chords. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I mean, she could have come up with Diana and they could have perhaps disguised it. Hey, love is strange. Look at love is strange. Mm-hmm. I mean, that started out as a wings jam doing, you know, some sort of reggae kind of thing. And it wasn't until they did take one in the studio that Paul listened to it and said, you know, I think that's love is strange, (laughs) you know, and sang it and it fit. And so he did a little bit of, you know, nip and tuck kind of things on the arrangement and redid it and added the vocal and it it became love is strange, but it, it started out as a wings original. Do you think that Linda ever got to be a pretty good songwriter or at least an adequate songwriter? I go back and forth on that. I do too. I think if there was more demand for her to produce songs, uh, she probably could have become a pretty decent songwriter. Um, I don't doubt that there was any kind of collaboration going on between them. I mean, you know, collaboration, as I think I discuss in the book, is a, it's however you want to define it. If you come up with one line, you can be a collaborator. In Paul's explanation of it, really just having someone to bounce ideas off was collaboration in a sense. But, you know, I bet she came up with some stuff. I mean, what about Cook of the House? Do you think that's her or Paul? I I think that's mostly her. Yeah. So it's very possible. I'm sure she came up with some lines in another day. Um, She apparently came up with some lines for, um, I guess it was Man We Was Lonely, um, where he didn't credit her, but later said she contributed to it. So, you know, if you're, you're living in a house with someone, you're working on songs, you're throwing lines, you know, back and forth over breakfast, it, it doesn't sound unlikely to me that she would have come up with something. I don't mean this in any kind of a snobbish way, but writing pop songs isn't really brain surgery. You can 
train yourself to do it pretty easily. And I think maybe she did. And it's a wide field. I mean, you could write something that is lousy and great and everything in between. And sometimes it's just a matter of how someone perceives it. That's right. You know, and how complicated was Love Me Do? Right. (laughs) And we're not talking tales of topographic oceans here. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things that I got from your book is that Paul had a career of basically being able to decide who he was going to give credit to and who he was not. Mm -hmm. Because he had a lot of people adding things and I mean, Harrison, the riffs and, and things that he added that became, you know, a part of the song in a modern sense, he definitely would be a writer of the song. I mean, that's one reason why modern songs have, seven writers sometimes because people are more cognizant of getting credit for what they do. Right. I mean, and, you know, look at um, something like four or five seconds, you know, which won't turn up until I guess volume four, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and Paul listened to it and said, am I, am I even on that? But, you know, they, they took a little chord thing that he did and he, got a writer credit based on that, which may be less than what Linda did on, you know, a lot of the songs she's credited for. So there you go. Right. It is a different world. So you, you mentioned Mal Evans' diaries a lot. Have you had a chance to see them? I mean, we, we all will very shortly hear from Ken Womack, but just out of curiosity. No, we haven't. Um, the things we quoted from were things where individual pages of his diary were published in various places. We subsequently have had a good chat with Ken Womack. His publisher is the same as ours, and his editor is the same as ours. So it's sort of all in the family, you know, plus volume two for us will come out after his Mal book. So he's helped us with certain things of Mal's that will be in our volume two. Not too much because Mal dies pretty soon into that volume. But there was a, a... time when Mel met with Paul and Linda and John and May out in LA, and we have his entry for that. So there's that. But the the other things that we quoted actually had been published in all those years when the Mal Diaries just kind of, you know, floundered around looking for someone to do something, I guess. uh, There were a number of newspapers that got their hands on a few pages and printed them and, you know, talked about the project generally. Plus, I believe one or two pages was printed in, I think, the Abbey Road deluxe edition book. So those things have been out there. I don't think we got any um, unusual things from nefarious collectors uh, that haven't been out in terms of mouth stuff. Yeah, the one thing that you had mentioned that I had kind of heard, but I hadn't ever seen any documentation for other than Ken telling us this, was that Paul and Mal had actually sat down and talked on the phone with regards to Mal working with Paul on the tours, the European Mm -hmm. tour for sure. Hmm, yeah. Not sure where we found that. We don't have Adrian here. He, He has a good memory for where things were since he did a lot of the research. 
I think Mal was involved a little with the 1973 British tour as well. And yeah, we have heard about Paul wanting to hire him for the Wings Over America tour, but I'm pretty sure we didn't mention it just because we were, you know, we tried to do this thing of no foreknowledge, you know. Yeah, reasonably chronological except for the footnotes. Except for the footnotes. That was my escape valve because actually I didn't want to do the no foreknowledge thing. I loved it in Tune In, but in Tune In, you know, partly because of what you said at the beginning about, you know, the Beatles recorded their stuff and they put it out and Paul takes a different approach where he sort of stockpiles all kinds of things forever and they might come out years and years later. That to me made it much more difficult to do a Paul McCartney book without foreknowledge because, you know, I'm, I'm now writing we're about to start the Venus and Mars sessions. And, you know, you get something like My Carnival. My Carnival didn't come out on record until 1986, the back of Spies Like Us. So you're going to have to talk about it being recorded, written, all that stuff, but you can't say when it came out. And I think in that case, even in footnotes, we, we probably won't because footnotes talking about what will happen in the future, we tended not to do too much for Paul, but for other things. For instance, like when Paul calls Hugh McCracken and he's unavailable at the beginning of the Ram sessions because he's recording with Aretha Franklin. So in the footnote, we gave what he was recording with Aretha Franklin, what the album's title was, when it eventually came out, and then the date of the release. I've got the same old friend, and they've got the same old sheen. I tell them the same old jokes, and I got the same old grin. But now the joke is on. That was something that we wouldn't have been, you know, allowed to do in the text of the book. Allowed because the rule was no foreknowledge, but a footnote, it was okay. They they let me have that indulgence. By they, I mean Adrian. A lot of this is, you know, tussling over things page by page. How was Paul living, or, or any of them at this point? I mean, it, it seems like everything was tied up. There was no income stream. So, you know, was he taking out of his savings account, or you know, how was well, he living? Well, I think Apple gave them each something like three thousand pounds a month allowance. Plus, I don't think the songwriting royalties were going into Apple. I think John and Paul were getting those separately. So he had that income. But once he was able to establish that Linda was his co-writer, it was kind of late in the game, actually. Linda was getting royalties of her own as well. Actually, maybe songwriting royalties were going into Apple because at one point, Paul or Linda, I can't remember which of them said it, but one of them said, actually, you know, Linda's royalties are the, the only money that's coming in right now. Right. Northern was not really being consistent because they were arguing that Linda had no history of being a songwriter and therefore could not claim royalties. And then they took mm. the same attitude with John and Yoko, but Yoko had a history. She did. And so, what, yeah. you know, how did that 
work. Consistency of argument isn't really the main point <laughs> for a corporation like that. What the main point is for them is, wait a minute, we have this one guy under contract and he is in a writing partnership with someone else that we have under contract. So the publishing royalties all come to us. Once Linda started writing, or once Paul began to claim that Linda was writing, if you believe ATV, Linda went through basically an arm of MPL music publishing. They had all different kinds of names like Kidney Punch Music and you know whatever. But uh, So Linda's publishing royalties, apart from her composer royalties, her publishing royalties would go to her or to MPL. And that meant that ATV Northern was giving up part of its publishing royalty. And naturally, they're going to fight that. And the fact that their two arguments in two cases are inconsistent, I don't think would have mattered much to ATV's lawyers. You know, it's like the job is to fight the loss of some of the royalties, right. and that was what they were doing. Yeah, I love the credit on the very first copy of Wildlife that I ever got, also claimed by Kidney Punch Music. <laughs> right, because they hadn't settled that yet. It was a little while. I think it was maybe late 72, early 73. I forgot when the actual settlement took place. But I do remember that Paul bought a Lamborghini when they did settle, <laughs> right? <laughs> Making the other members of Wings pretty upset. <laughs> That's right. And again, you know, this is all very messy, but also kind of logical. I mean, the guys in Wings are being paid a 70-pound-a-week salary because all of the money from Wings – records and you know anything going on is going into apple so paul can't give them their share of that plus they didn't have a contract with him so we didn't know really what that share was going to be i mean he talked about it being equal but they never got around to a contract defining that so they're on salary and they see Paul with his Lamborghini and they're thinking, well, you know, come on, we're still getting this 70 pounds a week here and what's going on. But on the other hand, you know, when Wings went on tour, Paul was paying for that. He was paying for equipment. He was paying for the trucks, the buses, you know, you name it. When they had second build and third build groups uh, on the British tour. He's paying their salary too. Uh, so th there has to be some limit to how much Paul is going to be expected to be paying into this. And he was already putting in quite a lot, and otherwise the money was tied up in Apple. So, you know, you can see it from the Wings players' point of view because they feel. They're not getting, first of all, what they were promised and from their point of view, enough to 
live in the style to which they wanted to be accustomed. And on the other hand, you've got Paul saying, okay, well, you know, I'm forking out all this money on behalf of this band, but there has to be a limit. So it's very complicated, you know. I can understand that, although I would have to say that McCartney was probably making all the decisions as to the expenditures that were chosen, you know, well, we're going to do this, you know. Right. But I'm also kind of counting it against the band, and that would be a problem. And the other thing Mm. that has always bothered me is that it's just like how people were treated in the 50s in the music business. I mean, at one point, this band had the number one single and the number one album in America, and they were being paid 70 pounds a week. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's not on either. Right. Well, and that's why, to a certain extent, Denny Lane was the perfect member of Wings because he didn't care how he lived. He was a gypsy. He was living in a caravan. Oh, okay. You want us to be here and us making very little money? Sure. (laughs) I'll go for that. Well, not only that, but in both the first two iterations of Wings, when contracts got close or it were being discussed, Danny didn't want to do it. Well, in fact, he couldn't do it. I mean, you, you make Well, right. He was under contract to Secunda at the time of right. the first iteration of Wings. But in the second, he was free and clear. And he could have had a contract. And he basically argued, wait a minute. And I'm not sure how totally logical this argument is, but this is the argument he put forward. If I'm just in Wings, then I'm a member of Wings. But if I'm under contract, then I'm Paul's employee. And that's different from being a member of the band. That was his argument that he made. (laughs) Right. And yet that same arrangement kept him from being able to co-write with Paul, in effect. Well, he did one. He did no words on Band on the Run. Right. Of course, by then, I believe he had gotten free of his obligation to Tony Secunda by putting out the Alain album. Right. Which would be re-released well into the future. Right. You know, and Paul tried to encourage him to contribute in terms of songwriting earlier. I mean, if you, you remember all through the British tour, there are a number of interviews where Paul says, yeah, you know, we're going to try and get Denny Lane to write some songs for us, too. Right. and. Denny would be sitting there saying, um, well, yeah, you know, I I just don't have any material, which was kind of a weird thing to say, seeing his, he had just completed an album of his own material. (laughs) When you think of the criticism that Linda had to bear, you know, I could see that Denny Lane would have the same issue with, I'm going to write a song and it's going to be next to compositions by Paul McCartney. That would be kind of... uh, Intimidating. But, you know, I bet it wouldn't have been quite as bad for him. This opens up a whole area that, you know, maybe sort of sub Rosa in the book, but we didn't overtly get into. But, you know, if Denny's writing with Paul, I don't think that Northern would challenge it because of, you know, there may, be, may have been basically a sexism thing. 
Denny wasn't Paul's wife and they could look at Linda or at Yoko and say, this is our big star's wife. And they just want to get her in so that they can siphon off some of the publishing. And I don't think they would have made that argument with Denny Lane, who had written songs, had singles out after the Moody Blues, but before Wings. So he did have sort of a track record. Um, But I also think they wouldn't have made that argument with a man. I could be wrong, but that just seems logical to me. If you look at the record business, especially at that time, I don't know how much better it is now, but at that time it it was not great about things like sexism. Well, we'll have to talk to Taylor Swift. (laughs) (laughs) So a significant chunk of really this whole book is managers and Paul saying, I want absolutely nothing to do with Alan Klein by sending his bills to Apple and Apple being involved, even though they're not on the record label or on the cover of the record, is that something that Paul would have necessarily known that it was in part Klein's money that was going to pay for his expenses? Yeah, I see what you mean, but he, he I, I doubt he'd have thought in terms of anything being Klein's money. You know, he, I think, felt that anything Klein was taking out of Apple in terms of royalties or salary or percentages was too much. Yeah, I think it's the Um, amount that he really had a problem with. And of course, it turned out that Klein was taking monies that weren't supposed to be his, things that came to the Beatles before Klein was involved. He was supposed to take monies that he earned for them, but he took more than that. Right. I mean, it was quite a circus because um, at one point when Paul refused to sign, um, Alan Klein persuaded John, George, and Ringo that he should have an extra share of royalty that was apparently done verbally. But he then ended up getting a bigger share, which during the lawsuit in 1971, the judge said that this was completely inappropriate and a breach of trust because Paul was never consulted about it. And then when Klein sued them and they countersued Klein in 73 when they didn't renew him, they basically took that particular increase that Klein had verbally negotiated with all of them except Paul and said, we agreed to that, but we didn't really understand it. So it was not fair of him to talk us into it. Mm. And it was, you know, Paul had to have been looking at that paperwork for that lawsuit and them saying we didn't understand. And he must have, you know, sort of face palmed and said, you know, well, I told them. <laughs> right. <laughs> and ultimately John said, you know, it turns out Paul was right. Yeah. Paul let Klein into his head much more than I think we even knew he did. You know, we knew that Paul was sitting there and worrying about Klein and what Klein was going to do. But it seems almost like every single page, there's something about Klein that Paul's thinking about. That's right. Yeah, he was kind of obsessed with that. Partly because Klein in Paul's mind kind of morphed through the story. At first, he was a manager that John wanted to bring in that he didn't want. And then ultimately, he was someone who was holding him captive. It's okay. If John wants to break up the Beatles, that's fine. Let's split the partnership. Each take our bits and go our separate ways. And can't do that. 
that wasn't so much Klein's fault as really John's. John didn't want to sign the uh, dissolution agreement. The, the others, I think, were taking their cue from John, and he didn't want to do it, so they didn't want to do it. And Klein was undoubtedly egging John on. Not much question about that. But yeah, you know, Klein changed for Paul. You know, you, you get by 1970, the spring, summer of 1970, he's talking about having dreams of Klein being a dentist coming in at him with a drill, you know. I wonder if he was saying, is it safe? <laughs> right. Is it safe? 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 I've always wondered whether Klein had something to do with the fact that when McCartney came out, the clear single to me was Maybe I'm Amazed, which when it came out in 76 or 77, proved that Mm -hmm. it was a hit. Why Hmm. was it Maybe I'm Amazed? A single. They made a a video to promote it. I think Paul didn't want to release a single. He was still in that I don't release singles from albums place. He was inconsistent about that, you know, unquestionably. But certainly back then, the idea of taking a single off an album wouldn't have appealed to him. And he would have felt probably if he were to release Maybe I'm Amazed as a single – it would have to come off the album, and let's face it, it's the strongest thing on the album. Yeah. So he might not have wanted to do that because of that. Yeah. But mainly that I think he, he just didn't like taking single off albums. I mean, he had to be talked into it for um, My Love, and he had to be talked into it for, well, for putting Helen Wheels on the U.S., Right, band on the run, and then he had to be talked into it again to release Jet as a single, and then Band on the Run as a single. Although with Band on the Run, he probably didn't have to be talked into it quite so much because he saw what happened with Jet. You know, he released Jet as a single, and the album went back to number one. Then it slipped down again. Released Band on the Run as a single, album went back up to number one. <laughs> so I think he began to see that you know, maybe Al Corey at Capitol was not completely crazy. Maybe he knows his business and his sort of quaint English way of looking at it probably needed to be reconfigured. Why yeah. did he put Jet out as a single? What happened was one of the promotion men, a very good promotion man from Capitol called Al Corey, who was having a very hot period selling a lot of records and moving, hey, you know, shifting vinyl, rang me up. And he said, Paul, you put the wrong single out. You know, Helen Wheels uh, shouldn't have done it. He said, let me have the record. Let me handle it. Let me tell you how to do it. He said, I can increase your sales by a quarter of a million, guaranteed. I thought, well, that's fighting talk. You know, it sounds it's the kind of person I like to hear. I said, but what are you going to do? He said, well, just yeah, listen to me. Put Jet out as a single. And that was one of his first sort of moves. I said, oh, yeah, that'd be good. He did the whole thing on Band on the Run. And it was the only album to kind of make number one, come down the charts and sort of go back up to number one. I mean, even years later when he's talking about it in McCartney on McCartney, it's like he just goes off into this voice. It's like, you know, the American pitchman. Yeah. I asked him when I interviewed him in 1990, I said, you used to have this rule about singles not being on albums, but what you do now is you put out a single 
and it will be in five different versions, four of which are available <laughs> only in Japan, each of which has like three B-sides that are not available anywhere else. Um, so what's the deal? And he said, well, back in the Beatles days, there were four of us. And if we didn't want to do something, there's four of us saying we didn't want to do it. I'm not the Beatles. If an A&R guy or a marketing guy comes to me and says, this is a really good idea, I have to think very carefully before I say no. So, And then in 30 years, we'll put out a box, a giant <laughs> crate with 80 of your singles. Yes, but not all of those Japanese B-sides. <laughs> so, That's a learning curve, basically. You know? Yeah, yeah. Um, the strawberry end pages, does that mean anything or is that just something the publishers gave to you? Oh, no. In 1973, when they were going to be playing My Love on Top of the Pops, Paul wore a shirt with that strawberry pattern on it, which he commissioned to be made. So we felt that um, even though strawberries are most closely associated with John, this was a pattern from a shirt that he basically gave them the design for, had them make it, and wore on at least you know one relatively well-known TV appearance. I think you mentioned that he called it the Strawberry Fields shirt. Right. Okay, Paul's going to borrow the producer's dog for a couple of weeks because we need some animals. How does he get away renaming the dog? <laughs> well, yeah, I think that's probably the answer I'd give, too. Um, you know, uh, also the fact is that when it came back, according to, you know, Eirik, the engineer, Eirik, the Norwegian, uh, it wouldn't answer to its original name. So he's basically stuck with the name Paul gave it, or at least he says, you know. <laughs> I bet a couple of weeks of calling it by its original name, he'd be answering to it. It also makes me wonder, how exactly did Paul and Linda get away with all they did at Cavendish? They apparently had their own little farm here. And, you know, we've already talked about Jet the Pony. And they bought Jet the Pony into Abbey Road. Who was looking after Jet while they were doing recording? <laughs> I think actually he was brought in there for a promo video uh, for Mull of Kintyre, uh, one that wasn't used. And so they probably were pretty close to the pony the whole time. They would have been in the shot. So um, it's not like they were focusing on recording in quite the same way. But I'm sure they could have found, a, you know, an assistant engineer <laughs> A pony minder. <laughs> sure, Glenn Johns would have been like, you brought a horse into the studio, you brought in the film crew, and then you don't even use it. <laughs> right. <laughs> that was one of the things that struck me is uh, Glenn Johns' reactions to the fact that Paul would just spend money on things, and, and you know, as far as projects, recordings, mm -hmm. uh, film, and then just not use it. Oh, yeah, there's, a, there's an awful lot of that. I mean, starting with all those songs that were stockpiled, you know, cost money to record those songs. But then Bruce McMouse, the Bruce McMouse show, I mean, that, that <laughs> sat in the can until a couple of years ago. Right. And, and I have to uh -huh. say that one of the things I, I really enjoyed from the book is the direction of, I mean, I never had seen all the Bruce McMath stuff until I read the book, and then I had to go looking for it. It just led me to a lot of things that I hadn't really paid much attention to. Well, and, and the whole story of how that 
came about that they were filming with no means of monitoring what they were filming until they got the film developed and looked at the cans. Mm -hmm. Even if they did, I think Paul would have wanted to do Bruce McMouse because he took this point of view that a concert film that is just the concert is going to be boring to people. I don't understand that myself. And I think that MPL, its production arm still thinks that way, or at least the people it hires still thinks that way. Because uh, once when they were working on a documentary from one of his tours, the film company that was doing it called me up. It was when I was at the Times. And and they said, look, you know, we're doing this uh, documentary about Paul's last tour. And, you know, we've got all this footage of people bringing their kids and crying during yesterday and crying during some of the old Beatles songs and all that. And we were wondering if you'd want to come down and maybe comment about what it is about Paul's music that people find so special. And I said, you know what, as someone who loves his work, I want to see the concert. I want to see all of the concert and I want to see only the concert. The last thing I want to see is someone like me interrupting the concert to pontificate about what's so special about Paul's music. Anybody watching it knows what's so special about Paul's music. Just show the concert. And of course they didn't, you know, and I didn't go. So (laughs) it became the usual thing with the critic talking heads, you know, sort of pontificating and lots of footage of people crying and all that stuff. So they put out a product where, you know, obviously I bought it. I've got it on my shelf. But if I want to watch a concert from that tour, I'm going to watch a bootleg. Right. Well, I mean, there's a reason why Rock Show and the New York City and then now the Glastonbury Show are just that much better than the produced McCartney concert videos. Mm-hmm. That's it. And I, I really think, you know, I, I could be drawing an illogical conclusion, but I really think that I see a direct line from Paul saying, a concert film is boring, let's put cartoon mice in to these guys saying, yeah, let's get some critics to pontificate. <laughs> right. Not to mention that they seem to run the cameras around the crowd and find the uh, youngest, most attractive women they can put on the screen. Right. There's that too. <laughs> <laughs> More than is necessary or you would expect. <laughs> that was somebody's job. <laughs> it must have been. But I have to say, I kind of like Bruce. I kind of wish that they'd gotten real voices rather than Paul and Linda. But <laughs> for what it is, it's, it's a little bit fun. Yeah. And the other Wings guys uh, as well. They, and they were very frustrated at you know having to have conversations with <laughs> imaginary mice. You know, like there's, you know, Denny, Denny Sywell especially saying, you know, I'm not trained for this. I don't know how to do it. I don't know what they want. And I'm sitting there talking to my hand, which is supposed to have a mouse standing on it, you know, and I, I just couldn't stand it. Well, you can tell in the finished product, he <laughs> yeah. has no interest in what's going on there. Right. That's what I, I get with the arc of Wings Mach 1 is it's really... Paul not reading the room very well. His band was not thrilled with doing Mary Had a Little Lamb and that sort of thing. (laughs) And not reading the room in terms of Henry. 
why do you get a lead guitarist who is known to be an excellent soloist and then not let him play what he wants to play? You know, it's, it's, are you just getting someone the way, the way, the way an orchestra would hire a violinist, you know, just someone who can produce whatever's put in front of them. That, that seems to have been the approach he took, but the one time he allowed Henry some leeway in the recording of my love what henry produced was brilliant i mean paul loved it critics loved it everybody loved it but then when it came time to do that again i mean it's exactly the same situation that led to henry leaving when paul wouldn't let him do a solo in no words well i think that you know paul likes collaboration but it's always on his terms I mean, he, yeah. he'll take a good idea. That's the collaboration he wants. It's a good idea. But he will choose to say, yes, that's a good idea, or no, we're not doing that. Yeah. And that makes it tough. You know, I mean, one thing you hear from well beyond the scope of this book, which ends in 73, but, you know, he'll set up collaborations with people he admires and wants to work with. And I think he goes into it with the best of intentions. I'm going to let my ego go and I'm just going to collaborate with this guy and we'll see what we're going to do. But at some point in the proceedings, there gets to be a disagreement and Paul reverts to the, um, okay, how many number one hits have you had? Right. Elvis Costello, anybody? Yeah. And Eric Stewart too. (laughs) Too true. And with that, we close the first half of our discussion with Alan Cozen. His book, The McCartney Legacy, published December 13th, 2022, from HarperCollins, available at finer bookstores everywhere. Alan returns to the show next week as John and I get a little bit more granular on specific topics within The McCartney Legacy that interest us. Talk to you then. Subscribe to When They Was Fab on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, or wherever finer podcasts are found. Please join our Facebook group, and we could be reached at When They Was Fab and on Gmail. The opening theme was written, produced, and recorded by Jay Young Kim, Beaster Famine Studios, San Francisco, California. And at the end of our lunch, Mark said to me, he said, you know, the one thing that I really want to know is, you know, what am I going to learn about Paul as a, as a person, as a man, as a musician, as a songwriter from your book? You know, and that always stuck with me when we were writing the book. Um, and, uh, you know, one thing some of the reviews will point out is that we didn't sit down with Paul uh, during the making of this book like Paul Muldoon did. Um, but in a way, we found that that gave us so much more freedom. Uh, because, you know, we managed to trace back interviews with Paul all the way to, you know, sometimes within a few days of an event taking place. So you get that fresh perspective from Paul um, of what was happening. And, and you know, we'd like to think that sometimes you get maybe a more accurate portrayal of what was going on, you know, of those events, you know. And we, 
we've meticulously sourced thousands of interviews to give Paul a voice throughout the whole book because this is his story, you know, so he, he has to have a voice. So it was really important for us to do that, for you to really get inside what was going on in his head and what was, you know, uh, motivating him to make certain choices in, in, in the music that he was writing. I tell you one thing, there's sickness going on and there's some good people doing work in hospitals, but they got no bread to do it on. Not only are they working in a miserable condition with sick people, but they're, they're scraping the barrel for funds to keep going. Turned up nice again. <laughs> 